Well, this morning we look to uh, Matthew chapter 27, and we look to verses uh, 27 to 43, as the accounts uh, go together. And as you see, those events cover uh, Jesus being mocked by the soldiers and those of the Roman cohort, and also his crucifixion, a portion of his crucifixion. So today, uh, we'll look at those events. And then, uh, and then we'll explain what it says. Uh, let's read here Matthew chapter 27, verse 27. Then uh, the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. As they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. And when they came to a place called Gagaltha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And as those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days Save yourself, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God rescue him now, if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. And so as we look to this text, we come to the culmination of the life of Christ and of his ministry among the people. The soldiers who belonged to Pilate took Jesus into the palace. And we see that taking place in verse 27. They take him into the praetorium. And it says in verse 27 also that a whole Roman cohort surrounded him. And this would mean that a company of about perhaps 80 to 160 men uh, who were soldiers surrounded Christ. Because that would be the number of a cohort approximately. And they surround him and they begin this wicked and lavish display of mockery toward him. There they put a scarlet robe on him says so in the text. And they begin to mock his supreme royalty. And in doing so, they were not finished. For the text tells us in verse 28 that after they strip him and put a scarlet robe on him, in verse 29, they twist together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head. 
And they twisted this. They press it down on his brow and they twist it. And showing that the thorns as the crown was twisted pierced the flesh of his skull. And surrounding the areas of his skull and the back of his head and pressing on the front of his brow. And if that were not enough, they place a reed in his right hand. And this was not an act of memoriam. This was not an act of memoriam, but it was the highest mockery and blasphemy. So here they mock him, they blaspheme him. They press this twisted crown of thorns upon his head, pressing his brow, uh, his scalp. And the twisting of that crown is, and was certainly to heighten the, the pain itself. They fiend worship toward him, as they have been doing throughout his time walking the earth and, and serving as the God-man. But they fiend worship toward him. They say, Hail, the King of the Jews. And Jesus here stands, as Hebrew says about him, he stood there as the King of Kings, because he is the King of Kings, bearing this contradiction of sinners against himself, bearing the deviled flesh of sinners surrounding him and mocking him against himself, resolve to accomplish the salvation of his own. But they're not done. For verse 30 says, after they mock him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, they spat on him. And they took the reed that was in his right hand. They take it from him and begin to beat him on the head with it. It says they spit on him. They take turns striking him with the reed. The reed that they had placed in his hands moments before. And not only was the crown of thorns pressed against his head, piercing his flesh, but they began to beat him on the head with this reed. And when they are done, when they were done, we could say they were not done. Because in a sense, it should have ended here. In a sense, humanly speaking, as injustices go, as the greatest travesty from the human level of injustice that has ever taken place, it should stop here. They've made their judgment. They've rendered him guilty, although he is perfectly innocent. And they begin to do uh, the work of assault against him. But they were only to lead him to be crucified. That was the instruction that they received from Pilate, to lead him away to be crucified. But they do all of this under the auspices of the one that they serve. Ultimately, Satan. However... God the Father is perfectly orchestrating the events in such a way to bring about the redemption of his elect. He's not complicit or responsible in the evil that men do in this account. He's not the one blaspheming his son because he cannot deny himself. He's not the one mocking his son because God does not mock anyone. He's not the one tempting his son to anything because God tempts no one, especially his son, 
in the fact that they are uh, completely aligned in their wills together. So you don't have this abandonment by God. And we'll get into that in the next section as I've left it as its own section where we'll discuss the words that Jesus utters when He's on the cross and their full prophetic meaning. But here you're not looking at one who is pitifully abandoned by God or pitifully abandoned by men. You're looking at one who is perfectly communing with God and perfectly fulfilling the redemption of his own. That's what you see. That's what the spiritual discernment, the spiritual eye, so to speak, sees when it looks at this text. And it's not that there's two meanings to the text, but there is certainly one in which we're looking at natural events unfold from the redemptive plan of God. But let's pause here. It's also why you can't misinterpret the things that are taking place to simply try to use them and import today's so-called social justice movements into this text. You can't say that Christ is somehow the figurehead of a lynched people. You can't make statements like that. Well, why? Because God's scheme is related to what is taking place in the heavenly places. And they are finding their fulfillment in the natural realm. It's not the other way around. It's not you interpret the natural realm and begin to import them into the heavenly places. So we have to look at this account for what it is and for what is happening. And as far as injustices go, this is the only injustice that involved an innocent man. A completely innocent man. And let me further heighten that. The innocent God-man. The innocent God-man. But they spit on him. They take turns striking him. They beat him on the head. And then in verse 31, after they had mocked him, it says, they took the scarlet robe off of him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. Had this been you and I, this is where it would have ended for us. This is where this account ends. For the unbeliever, they have no attachment to this account except they're reading elements of their own guilt and shame that they will suffer because they have not been joined to the substitute. But had this been us, standing in the place where Christ stood, this is where we would have received the just sentence for our sins. We would have been not only proven guilty, but the punishment would have been just. The treatment, the severe treatment of us would have been just, fair, equitable. I would even say expedient. This is where if we had not been those elected unto salvation, this great hope that we have, then here we would have stood clothed in the garments of his wrath, ushered into eternal punishment in hell forever. Because when the unbeliever looks at this account, they can only stop here and go no further. But for believers, we go here and we proceed forward with the hope that is to come. The reality of a resurrection after the crucifixion, And then the reality of the Lord returning to establish his church. And then the reality of all that he has given to us 
uh, related to his church, and then the reality of his coming again to establish his kingdom forever. But the unbeliever stops here. They would have to close the book, and it ends. But not for us. Not for us. And because we don't know who among us are the elect, we continue on for their sake in what is known as the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these events are certainly uh, uh, recorded and included in that. But when we look at these events, we don't say what I've said is true of us about Christ at any point. Because for Christ, even standing here as he is, and they're treating him as they are, he was never guilty of what they falsely witnessed against him. He had resolved to accomplish the Father's will and to align himself with the Father's will. He did not do so begrudgingly. He did so triumphantly. For he was and is for all time the sinless, spotless lamb who did not sin at any point in this account, at any point in his life, nor was any deceit found on his mouth. I am uttering biblical prophecy. The words from the prophet. Who went to the cross like an unblemished lamb to the slaughter. He was not surprised by these events. He received the blows to his head willingly. The crown pressed upon his thorn. Uh, the crown of thorns pressed upon his head willingly. And all the abuse of the words that will come in the following verses. He received them all. And why? Why would he do such a thing? He did it for the sake of his elect, for those whom he had chosen for salvation, for those who would be joined to him. If you confess him as Lord, God, and Savior, for you and I, if you do not, I plead with you this hour to receive him. Not receive him as one who has a choice in the matter, but receive him as one who must fall before him in light of the sins and transgressions you've committed against him and plead with him for forgiveness and mercy which he gives. But after they mock him, it says in the account, they placed his own garments on him and in leading him away to be crucified, they encounter a man named Simon from Cyrene. And they pressed him into service to bear this cross. And Simon was a man of, of certain wealth, status as we're told in the other gospels but they encounter him and he helps and aids in the Lord carrying his cross because the Lord beaten abused physically assaulted and all the things that had taken place against him not only causing fatigue but and not only causing weariness but he's near death at this point naturally speaking And so he's too weak to do it on his own, humanly speaking. And so Simon helps him. And Simon is pressed to do so because it says that those who perpetuated this uh, wicked violence against Christ, they pressed him into service to bear his cross. They put pressure on him. They tell him to do this. And for them, it's to keep up the spectacle. 
from God's vantage point, Simon from Cyrene is strategically and divinely placed at this crossroads of all of redemptive history to aid the Lord in carrying his cross. And so in the next section, in verse 33, it begins where the events of verse 32 leave off. And when they came to a place called Gogotha, which means place of the skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. This drink that they give to him would have certainly had the elements of some form of uh, alleviating pain, some kind of a painkiller, some kind of a sedation element and component to its compounds. And it would have in some ways, in kind of researching and studying this, it would have in some ways alleviated the pain of crucifixion and even to rush along or expedite his death. It is also possible that this drink was filled with elements of some kind of narcotic or poison in the ancient sense when drink at high doses could not only numb pain but stop the vital organs from working and bring about death very quickly. And we do see here that Christ does taste it but he's unwilling to drink it in full. Whatever this drink was mixed with, after tasting it, Christ refused it. Why? Why? Why would Christ refuse this? Well, he refused shortcuts. I take you no further than the Garden of Gethsemane, where he must drink the cup of the Father's wrath against sinners in full, and resolves to do so. He refused to circumvent the agony of the cross. And listen very plainly, he resolved not to drink the cup from men. He was not there to drink the cup that was passed to him from men. He was there to drink the cup of the Father's wrath meant for sinners. So he would not trade off. He would not trade cups. He tasted it. And would not drink it in full. And his tasting it is a part of the overall prophecy of Isaiah. But he would not drink. And even the psalmist uh, points to it. He tasted it and would not drink it in full. He would not accommodate after all they did to simply circumvent the agony of the cross. Because the agony of the cross and everything he had endured was to be on our behalf. And so to sidestep it, to escape it, would be, in a sense, to avoid the divine plan of God the Father. To not suffer on the cross in the appointed time in which he was called to suffer. The days on the cross, the few days in which he was called to suffer while hanging on the cross. He was to endure that suffering as well on behalf of sinners. And so he would not take a drink that would cause that to be rushed, that would cause that to be sedated, that would alleviate any form of pain or to place him in a sedative state where he was only half lucid 
in that regard. But he was to endure all the suffering. He was to absorb upon his divine person all the sins that were charged to the account of sinners for them to be charged to his account in this way. Not to his nature, but on him. Not in him. On him as one who is the perfect, sinless, spotless lamb. Not in him as one who somehow his nature changes and in any way, falsely as some might say, that he has in this instance become a sinner. That is not the case. For even in 1 Corinthians, I believe it's chapter 5, when it says, he became sin. A reading of that passage, understanding the components of even the grammar used in that, would indicate certainly that he became a sin offering. That he is a sin offering. He's not a sinner. He's not the ultimate sinner. He's not the incarnation of evil. He's not any of those things. He is the perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb of God who took upon Himself the sins of the world. And furthermore, took upon the sins of the world, the world being exclusively relegated to the elect of God with pleasure, with purpose, not surprised, not taken off guard, not only at the behest of God the Father, but in agreement with God the Father, under the divine watch of God the Father, who is eternally pleased to watch His Son bear the sins for those whom He had chosen for salvation. And that, my friends, is a very clear and concise discourse of what has taken place on the cross. What of the agony? What of the moment of saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We will get to that the next time we look at that section. But you have to understand what has taken place because any movement away from affirming Christ as perfect in this regard is to take away not only from the atonement, but take away from the very nature of God himself. And you strike against the atonement and you strike against its what's called efficacy, its effectiveness, and you strike against its intent, which is its reach. And it's why you have all these teachings outside of the scope of what the Bible actually teaches about the atonement. It's why people are arguing about the scope of the atonement and who Christ was in the midst of the atonement. It's why Christ is being redefined. It's why people can't effectively fight for the glory and honor of Christ because they don't know how to fight for the glory and honor of Christ related to what he was and who he is and who he will be for all time as he was crucified and risen again. You can't fight for the person and work of Christ at some political point if you don't understand him and his work in the atonement. You can't fight for the honor and glory of Christ related to him being the head of the church if you don't understand who he is and who he was in the atonement. You can't do it. But here it is very plain. Who he is, who he was, and how he suffered. Even Isaiah 53 makes it plain. Psalm 22 makes what is said in verse 46 plain, uh, and, and what is said about it. Uh, it makes verse 46 very plain. The events following verse 46 make verse 46 plain. But again, we cannot have half-hearted attempts at somehow 
broadening the scope of the atonement, and then at the same time limiting the efficacy of God the Father himself and divorcing him and detaching him from the Son because of a casual glance at verse 46. You can't do it. You want to ask, what is the effect of it? The effect of it is not some expelling hypothetical persons out of the scope of God's mercy. The effect is what you see today. A people who don't even want to talk about doctrine and the person and glory of Christ anymore. Because they're infatuated with everything else. They don't know how to fight for the honor and glory of Christ because they've redefined it. They don't know how to discuss his kingdom because they were busy building their own. And so in that way, we come to this account and we have to be very particular about who we say Christ is, what we say happened to him, and what part we give and explain about God the Father related to what he has revealed about himself in the midst of what is happening to his son. And so, he would not drink this cup handed to him by sinners. He was not on their terms. He was not on their schedule. They were not the orchestrators of this event. They were not the planners of this plan. This was not simply... Someone is crucified in the Roman Empire on this day because of some misunderstanding. This is the culmination of all human and redemptive history upon which every person ever living must face. And so given that fact, Christ is not about to submit himself to the scheme of men, even in the slightest details. Had he received the cup, it would be against his own words, had he received the cup from these sinners. Because he said, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down. Drinking their cup to alleviate things would mean that he did not lay down his life, that they took it from him. And so here, even in the slightest detail, there is no misunderstanding as to what God the Father is accomplishing through his son and the son submitting himself to God the Father in the functional sense, by nature both being equal with one another. But after this, they place him on the cross, and this all fulfills prophecy and scripture. They kept watch over him as he endured the agony of the cross, and they labeled him with what is called here a charge. Verse 37, and above his head they put up the charge against him, which read, this is the king of the Jews. This is the king of the Jews. John's gospel in chapter 19, verse 21, records the religious leaders of Israel's pressure to switch the phrase that appeared above Christ's head to say this, and I quote, he said he was the king of the Jews. That's what they wanted over his head. He said he was the king of the Jews. But what they wanted to serve as an indictment against Christ served as an indictment against them because he is the king of the Jews. 
And they, the Jews, did not crucify someone who lied about his kingship and lied about his rule over them. They crucified their king. They crucified the king of kings. So it was not absurd for Christ to proclaim himself as king as they wanted the charge above his head to read. But it was absurd for his subjects to crucify their king, especially the God king, the king of kings. And so in this, you see that the Lord God himself takes rulers' hearts and turns it as he pleases. Because the answer from Pilate is, essentially, I summarize him and paraphrase him, I'm leaving it as it is. It will say, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Remember, as I've said it, because this is a proverbial wisdom, and you see it in examples all throughout Old Testament, that it is God who turns the heart of the king. It is him. He takes that heart in his hand, and he does as he pleases with it. Not as we're pleased to petition him to do all that. He does as he's pleased. And he'll take that heart and say, I will use this heart for judgment. I'll use this heart for affirmation. Even if this man hates me and despises me, but he turns the heart. And in the West, I fear that this a pitiful lowercase g, lowercase god, a false god is being taught that has no beckoning, no power over the wills of men and over their hearts. But not our God, not the God of the Bible. He prevails over the will, the heart, and the whole person as he chooses. And you know the great power of his hand, and I use hand in the sense of an uh, anthropomorphism that is ascribing human parts to that which does not possess them. But his hand takes the heart, even if the man is wicked, and accomplishes his will without him being in the slightest responsible for wickedness. You see that here. You see it with Pilate. You see Pilate stand up against the pressure when in other places he did not. Not because Pilate somehow had a change of convictions or somehow he, oh, he heard our cries and our prayers. It's because God reached in, grabbed his heart, and said, I'm turning it to do what I please with it. Even if that man continues to despise me. So do not fret, brothers and sisters. Do not fret when men come into power because God can reach in and turn their hearts however he pleases. Whether it be unto judgment or whether it be uh, unto a favorable outcome for his own. But in all moments, we give praise and honor to him, to him. And you see it here. You see it here. But this was not simply a miscarriage of justice. It was certainly that, but it was not only that, and that is not the emphasis. On display is the divine pleasure of God in the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Listen to this. He reaches in and grabs the heart of man to turn it in this event toward those things that would align with his will in accomplishing redemption and salvation through Christ for his elect. What do you think he's doing now? 
He's still reaching in and bringing about the eternal kingdom to come. The millennial kingdom which will come first. The rapture of the church. He's reaching in not only in certain events but into men's hearts. And from our vantage point, why does so-and-so do this? Why is this being allowed? Why is this happening? It's because God is doing as he pleases. Some might say, oh, God is on the throne. Sure, but that sounds like plan B when you've hedged your bets against that. I'm saying that God reaches in and turns hearts and says, I will do as I please. And my outcome will be exactly what the Bible has proclaimed. And so we rest in that. That's what we rest in, an active God, not just a God who's sitting on the throne and going, what do we do next? Not just a God who's going, well, we wanted to do X, Y, and Z, but I'm still on the throne because your plans didn't work out. Glad you realize it. No, God is actively in the events, actively turning wills and hearts and minds. And I'm not only talking about his elect, certainly through them. I'm talking about men who oppose him. He raises them up and then he crushes them with the same hand. And so that's the God that we have to continue to preach from the word of God. Because you see it again here. You see it here. Even in Pilate's indecision, God is glorified because it's God doing it. In spite of how Pilate feels about God. So this isn't Christian hedonism. It's not that Pilate has to delight in God for God to move. Pilate hates God. All God has to do is reach in and turn his will, and then Pilate will do as God pleases. That's the God of the Bible. And so on display is his divine pleasure. This is the perfect Lamb of God vicariously offering himself on the cross. We encounter next two men. The Bible identifies them as thieves, men worthy of death and guilty of the charges levied against them. They were deserving of crucifixion as criminals. Certainly not true of the one they mocked, because they do mock him. But here notice, at each point, you see the displeasure of sinners against Christ. I'm going to repeat that. You see the displeasure of sinners against Christ. Because after verse 38, verse 39 says that those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads. So you see their displeasure. You don't see anywhere the displeasure of God against uh, God, the father against his son. It's not here and it must be imported into the text, whether it be from hymns or misunderstandings. You see the displeasure of the wicked and arrogant sinners against them. You see that in the verses that follow. And my question is, as we certainly look forward at what's to come, must we place God among them? Do we somehow put God in the seat of scoffers to teach some momentary separation between God the Father and God the Son? Do we misinterpret prophecy in order to Draw from what Christ has said and not understand that Christ is not only fulfilling an entire prophetic context, but he's also saying things that relate to that whole prophetic context. He's not just making statements because he's woozy. Remember, he didn't drink the drink. He's fully aware of what's going on. He's fully aware of what's happening. 
We need not reconcile God's displeasure with God sending His Son to die on behalf of the elect. I'll say it again. We need not reconcile God's displeasure with God sending His Son to die on behalf of the elect. We need only to reconcile God's love for His Son with His mercy for sinners, saving those among generations of mockers who scoff at His Son and how He turns them into His children. And at each point... He and his son are in perfect agreement, perfect union, perfect fellowship for all time, eternity. So here we see those events. They're wagging their heads and saying, you are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. If he delights in him. If he delights in him. Let God rescue him. You see that? Do you see the issue with a hedonistic understanding of Christianity? That somehow God will act if I'm delighted with him? Not irrespective of how I feel, I must persevere. And therein, as I persevere, and as I do as I'm told to do, and as I'm commanded, God will be pleased because I'm joined to his son in spite of how I feel, in spite of how I wake up tomorrow, in spite of how I feel about the world's events, I know that God's will is being accomplished. Whether my joy is outwardly expressed or it's not, I can have joy by inward disposition. But they weren't saying this. They were using God's delight as some means of some kind of leverage. Some separation between father and son. That somehow Jesus ended up in these predicaments because he didn't delight in God. But that's not true. Here, what you see is Christ enduring the contradiction of sinners against himself as he is surrounded. He is not enduring the contradiction of the Father against himself, for his Father is no sinner. This is not the contradiction of the Father against the Son, and at no point does it become that. The thieves mock him, and in verse 38... The bystanders and those passing by mock him. They abandoned him, not the father. Psalm 22 is very plain in that regard, and we'll talk about it. They abandoned him, not the father. The multitudes abandoned him, not the father. The nation of Israel abandoned him, not the father. And up to this point, let me put this On the flip side for you, the father had abandoned the nation of Israel except through what has taken place here. So why would the father disassociate himself from his work? Why would he disassociate himself from Christ in whom he is well pleased? Why would he walk by proverbially and figuratively speaking and wag his finger at Jesus 
after he's the one who placed Jesus on the cross. The Father is not reneging on his work and on his plan. Do you see how dangerous it is to make these statements that somehow pit the Father and Son against each other? You know who does that? Satan. Not Christ, not the Father. Satan does that. But these people abandon him, not the Father. And I'm not saying that people don't have challenges interpreting Scripture, but I'm saying to uphold things that lead to the conclusion of either Jesus being a sinner, the Father being complicit in sin, that's, that's called wickedness. That's called blasphemy. That's called rebellion. That's called sin. And it needs to be repented of. We must at every turn uphold the glory and honor of Christ. And if our understanding of Scripture is not leading us there, we must plead with God to lead us there. And stop our mouths until our mouths lead others there. But they abused him with words and actions. They shook their heads at him in disgust and shame toward him, and they spoke abusively to him. They misinterpreted Jesus' words, and along with it, divine prophecy. We had better not, but they did. And in verse 40, you see shades of Matthew chapter 4 in Jesus' temptation. They even echoed the words of Satan toward him, subtly speaking, because Satan is also there to throw confusion upon the events before men. Because this is the most important event in all of human and redemptive history. This is the only way to salvation. But you see shades of Matthew 4. Remember them? If you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God. You see it there? If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Come down from the cross. It sounds like the wager, the offer from Satan in the temptation of Christ in Matthew chapter 4. The chief priests, scribes, and elders of the people cast their insults in with the others. The irony is that they proclaim themselves to be the gatekeepers of Torah, the writings and the prophets, nearest to those things, and they rejected those things by their mockery toward Christ. A theological understanding, biblical convictions, Bible study, doctrinal conversations are all a blessing when they lead to worship of Christ. They are worthless when they exist for their own regard. And worthless in this way. They may even be used, not the cause, but used to reject Christ. And we see that here. That these were people who were the gatekeeper. The scribes were supposed to interpret Torah and the prophets and the writings. To show the hope of the one to come. To point to this actual event. That was their job. The Pharisees were supposed to ensure that they by practice demonstrated, and not Pharisees by name, but those who would show themselves as separated ones in Israel, religious leaders, chief priests, they were supposed to practically demonstrate all the things that were true by both their teaching and by their practice. And all of that that they knew, they threw it at Christ in mockery toward him and hated him and rejected him. Do not be surprised when 
when people use what God has given them to find himself, they use it against him to blaspheme his name. Do not be surprised. It, it's certainly a disgusting thing, but it ought not to surprise us. But they were supposed to anticipate his coming and to prepare their people for him, and then they were supposed to hail him. And they should have done this if at no point in this time, they should have done it at the point of John the Baptist. But here they protected their lies and their errors because their lies and their errors were certainly more important to them. They believed not only that they were the chief architects of the crucifixion, but they believed that God operated on their terms. That's why they say it as they do. It's why they say, essentially, if, even if you look at verse 42, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. We will believe in him. Essentially, if God rescued him and if God took him down from the cross, then he would, quote unquote, prove to be the son of God to them. But his proof was not to be rendered to them in that way. And it was certainly not to be rendered to them only in this moment. The proof was in the totality of his ministry. It was in the totality of all the prophecies before this. That was the proof that he's the son of God. And this moment only heightened that proof. But the proof was in the works that they mocked as well. You see it here. For it says he saved others. They did not deny what he had done. They denied their part in it. He saved others. That was the proof. That was the proof. Men do not reject Christ often by, uh, by simply rejecting his claims altogether. There's so many movements, ministries, seminars, people who make a living convincing you that people outrightly reject Jesus and his teachings. I would say there's another movement that needs to be addressed. It's the one that uses the totality of his ministry and all the things said about him and can even proclaim them and even live as though sometimes those things are true except in this way. That they reject those things for themselves. They reject those things for themselves. Men have no problem in the West telling you about Christ. Or telling you what Christ can accomplish for you. Or giving you sermons about what Christ may do. And then you'll find out some scandal hits them. Or something happens. And oh, how did they walk away from Christ? Well, because it was never for them. It was never for them. It was just a job. They weren't concerned with how these things affect their own soul. They were only proclaiming them, but they never lived them. And I would say the error of the religious leaders of Israel is that they weren't even proclaiming them any longer. They weren't even proclaiming them. They had erected a whole system that would withstand anything or anyone that would proclaim the living Christ among them. The proof was in the things they rejected. They rejected the fact that he saved others. And so they used those words in their own minds as a form of rejection. Facts about what he's accomplished 
and rendering some, some uh, evil to those facts. Even though there was no evil in what had been accomplished. They do it also uh, by, by misinterpreting what he said. The proof was in him, Jesus saying plainly that he would destroy his own body and raise it up. These aren't secrets, but they rejected him along those lines. It shows this. Wicked men bypass and suppress the proof of Christ's lordship in favor of proof on their own terms. They want proof on their own terms. If God does this, this, and this for me, I'll believe him. Not, not if he does and accomplishes what he said he will accomplish according to his word. But if he does X, Y, and Z for me, I'll follow him. This is why experiential religion always leads to apostasy. It always leads to rejection. It always leads to a surface level form of uh, counterfeit Christianity. Where people can hear things that make them feel good, but they don't do anything that the Bible actually says. They say things about Christ, but they don't follow the Christ they're saying things about. Here, you see, they don't want to feed a desire for the truth. They want to feed a desire for endless skepticism, doubting, all to justify their sins, and so it is here. Verse 41, it comes out in this way. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe him. This statement is not only sinful, it's not only completely antagonistic to God the Father's redemptive plan, but this is a statement that signals a precursor to a lot of what Jesus said in Matthew 24. It points to the Antichrist. It points to the Antichrist. It points to their desire for him in this way. That they want someone not to suffer vicariously on their behalf. They want someone to rule politically and economically for their benefit. Stop this business about proclaiming that we have sinned. And get on with the business of leading us to be powerful in this life and in this world. Doesn't that sound like modern man as he rejects Jesus himself? Doesn't that sound like what modern man has crafted in his own right? They only want a Christ fashioned after economic and political conquest. So they're ashamed of the Christ that's hanging on their behalf or should be on their behalf. They only want a Christ fashioned after this world. Not the one who conquers the soul. They want a Christ who would initiate partisan glory, political glory, not divine redemption for sinners. You know why I'm saying this, as I am? Because you live in a world today where many people are disappointed with God, hiding it in some attempt that they think to uphold his glory, but they're disappointed because he didn't achieve the outcome they wanted for themselves. And so they don't have a physical Christ to wag their fingers at and shake their heads at, but they certainly wag their fingers at him, his people, and his book. And they say, away with this. Away with this. I want glory to come through partisan policies. I want glory to come through the kingdoms of this world.
They don't want a Christ who's hanging on the cross. They don't want to preach a Christ who died on the cross for sinners and was risen. They want to skip all that. They want a Messiah cloaked in nationalistic, political power. And I'm talking about on all sides of the aisle. That's the Christ they want. That's the Savior they want. They want him draped in the flag of their forefathers. But Christ is coming to destroy that scheme as well. Beware that the Christ you serve is not served as a plan B because your perception of him has not worked out in your favor. All of them are guilty of sin and all of them took part in accusing Christ for things that he said he would accomplish. A lot of people are angry with God this hour because they're not actually reading what he said he would accomplish. For there would be no anger toward him of righteous indignation toward the world is certainly justified. But there would be no frustration with God. There would not be flipping statements like, well, I tried my best. God, you're still on the throne. You take it over. As if he somehow just entered the throne. As if somehow because my plans didn't work out, now he's on the throne. I'll allow him to be on the throne now. It's a matter of convenience. But that's not the God we serve. In fact, God is actively in world events taking his stand to achieve the glory of his name for his purposes. And furthermore, in this way, that there will come a time where there will be a visible ruler seated on the throne of David. So it is that throne that we're watching and he is not enthroned there just yet. It is coming. It is coming. But they all took part in this. They insulted him for being on the cross, even though this was prophecy that they should have believed. God the Father didn't deviate away from what he had promised they did. But Christ was not an object of men's pity. He was not an object of men's pity. He didn't need God to rescue him from the cross. God rescued sinners from himself. And so he was to be the sole object of our faith. Even as we look at this text, we don't look at one in whom all these events have somehow gotten away from him. But no, they have charged him falsely. And thus, in charging him falsely, they don't understand the nature, purpose, person, or function of who God is and what he's accomplishing. And it's where all these accusations are coming from. Jesus did say he is the Son of God, but he was also very, very clear about his purpose. Very clear that here is what the Son of God will come to do. Here is what the Son of God will come to accomplish. We're thankful that he didn't. Listen to their overtures to come down from the cross because he accomplished it on our behalf. Next time we look at the sixth and the ninth hour and seek to bring clarity as Christ cries out to his father, Eli, Eli, lama sabbatani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We'll talk about that next time. Let's pray.